about to be a completely unreliable asshole. Hey, Tim. Ryan. Tim, Tim, Tim. Yeah, okay. Even though we're doing Phantom of the Opera, it doesn't mean we're doing the musical today. Oh. <laughs> I know. That's our. What a that bummer. It, that is probably the biggest cultural touchstone <laughs> for it. Anyway, hello, Tim. And hello, everyone. Thank you for being here. Where is here? Here is Dismembering Horror. Welcome to Dismembering Horror, episode 97 of Dismembering oh. Horror. It's the podcast show. We're myself, Ryan McDuffie, and... Myself, Tim Aslan. That's right. And your cat. <laughs> you almost knocked my mic over. Um, <laughs> quit licking yourself, man. Um, <laughs> that's, uh, I, that's every morning I will look at myself in the mirror. That's what I say. <laughs> <laughs> um, what is it? Yes, podcast show where, yes, okay, we said our names. We talk about what worked for us, what did not work for us, anything we found interesting or noteworthy about a, guess what? You guessed right, horror film. And yep. we we travel, and as in today's episode, we can go as far back as 1925 slash 29 slash 30, or as <laughs> soon as uh, 2020. Um, we've got something from this year, I think. If not, we have the hunt in our hat coming up at some point. Um, I hate to break it to you, but The Grudge was 2020. Oh, God, right. That's, and I think that's the first movie we saw of 2022. It, it was. <laughs> Back when it we could still see things. So in, bad. When we could still th- see things in theaters. Tim and I have been, um, for, for a little you know footnote in history if that this podcast may provide, we have been in shelter in place for a while now because of coronavid 19 virus no fun um but we're here in this digital space through time and space for you mm. and tim all right what do we got first to get into our episode anything you wanted uh, to bring up that having to do with this or anything else did i mention last episode how badly i rolled my ankle yes you talked all about it i was oh, god <laughs> well that's still going on <laughs> um <laughs> anything about uh the, the i can't film? do anything so anything about films we've been watching in the film world you want to mention um my film is i mean it's been done for a little bit but we're now about to screen it officially nice, nice. So um cool. today uh i saw ian holm died oh really yeah, you didn't see that yet? No, I didn't look. I have l- not looked at anything today. Yeah. I'm avoiding, like, consuming that any media or whatever. Right, right. Momentarily. Well, rest in peace, Ian Holm, and I'll, you know, specifically shout out Alien, since this is a horror, horror I'll podcast. specifically shout out the Jack the Ripper movie he was in where he played the doctor. <laughs> I haven't seen that. How about that? I have no idea what it's even called. I just remember as a kid watching it on like TNT or something a few times. Oh, wait, like, no, cool, that's great. Cool. That's called From Hell. I just forgot. I've seen that movie that one? tons of times. Yeah. My friends and I were big on it when it came out. Honestly, I'd be really, that'd be a lot of fun to revisit on our show. 
Maybe, is it that uh, one? I feel like it's a. If I, I feel like it's an older one. It's like um. Well, two thousand one. Nineteen from, uh, years old. No, no, no. This is like when I was in high school. So like he's been Jack school. the Ripper twice. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'm. Wait a minute. Wait, let's look it up. Let's look it up, Ryan. We have this thing called the internet. We can look things up. You're right. He's in From Hell. Look at that. Is this like, like your... Maybe your... that is it. Maybe that's what I'm remembering. <laughs> I feel like what's the whole thing of like Shazam or Kazam? Like one of those being a made up movie in people's uh, heads. I feel yeah, like... You, the, the, the Mandela effect. Do you just have like the Tim Della effect for a lot of things? Oh, yeah. <laughs> going on? <laughs> no doubt. Cool. Um, well, hey, anyway... He's in Naked Lunch. I love that movie. Yeah, it's great. All right. Well, hey, so we got, even though this movie's from the 20s and we couldn't find like an actual trailer, we're going to watch some re-release trailer nonetheless to get us into the mood to talk about today's film. So you ready for it, Tim? I was born ready. All right. Here we go. The first uh, film version. We all There's also one from the early 40s, but here from 1925 slash 29 slash 30, The Phantom of the Opera. Tim, anything you'd like to communicate about that trailer since our listeners couldn't see any of it? and there, that, Or I guess specifically since couldn't hear any dialogue like we'd normally have. Um, well, not really. They showed parts of the movie. Oh, God. Okay. Yeah. Sorry I asked. <laughs> I mean, there was they some... Sh- there's some fun old-fashioned like inner titles as far yeah. as like. Um, Do you uh, think those were po- police blocked traffic to to like support the crowds in the pouring rain who stood out yeah. to see Phantom of the Opera? <laughs> you know, yep. big um, event film. This was huge event film. Well, I yeah, I mean, feature films had only been around for what? Right, like on the poster it says this is Universal's masterpiece. You know, it's, yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, and which made it ripe for, okay. So, so I feel like even though this, this supersedes a thing of note, maybe getting, trying to explain the different versions of it all, Tim. Um, Oh God. <laughs> but I feel like we must <laughs> and luck. try. Um, okay, great. Well, well, first let's rate it and then let's include that in our summary. Okay. Um, you know, I'm going to be probably a i guess it's a rent i'm pretty like not into it unfortunately but gets it to a rent for historical film yeah kind of historical reasons there's some set design and construction that is really really great and there are there are definitely some like key um composition shots using you know what you would expect contrast and shadow and stuff like that. They're super, super cool, but I don't know. There's sort of, um, I don't know exactly what it is that makes me kind of just go whatever about it. Yeah. But that exists and it just, it's kind of a bummer. 
Yeah, I'm um, trying to parse it out because I kind of feel the same way, and I wonder. Well, first of all, there's the the sort of the um the confusion over not having a definitive version. I think prevented me from I, it prevented yeah. me from kind of like totally just letting it wash over me. I think um, that's a part of it. I think that actually, yeah, it, without getting into the specifics, I think there's a handful of confusing or yeah, confusing elements in the story mm -hmm. that make it a little bit hard to like kind of key into like what to care about. Wait, so now now it is applicable. Which version did you watch? The twenty five oh. or twenty nine slash thirty? I watched the twenty four frame per second twenty five you know, nineteen twenty five. Really? On the second disc that I gave you? The oh, first shit. the first disc is the twenty nine. Oh, no. no. So the twenty nine. That's right. The, the, yeah. The no, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I did the twenty the nineteen twenty nine at twenty four frames per second with the organ music. Okay. Same one I did. Um, that's right. Yeah. Awesome. Okay, well apparently one of the differences with the twenty five version is the story is more fleshed out. Oh, cool. Um, anyway, oh, right, because we'll, there's a bunch of deleted scenes or whatever. We'll we'll get ahead well, to that. Whatever you um, want to call it. But yeah, I don't know. So I mean, you could maybe watch the 25 version and have it be up there more. Um, but sorry, we we need to get into that and get our rating out of the way. I also give it a rent it because I think like there's nothing bad about it, and I just think it was all cool. Um, I think. Oh, maybe I can it, think of a couple things that I it with the optics of. 2020 oh no of course i mean yeah that yeah. i go oh shit no there is definitely That's some of that good. but as far as you know like i don't know i don't know <laughs> it's not no i i think i think what you're saying is that for its era and for the style and for like the time that it was going on there is not really anything bad about well, it well just to if i'm trying to maybe parse out how i feel you know with other older films that we've watched that like like hexen just had a, a spell that it put over me that mm -hmm. this one didn't quite reach yeah um so that's just more kind of thing but i wonder you know if had i seen this in a theater with a live accompaniment maybe i'd be maybe. freaking out about it and also i feel like this could kind of in the way that i would love to own like the box set of all the universal monster movies even though most of them aren't like quote unquote buy-its for me. Mm -hmm. Like I'd be happy to have this on my shelf. Um, sure. To, but uh, I still like, yeah, give it a rent it as far as we're concerned here. Anyway. Oh. All right. So summary. Okay. 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 <laughs> okay. So. <laughs> so you ready? You've got the Paris Opera House. Yeah. Sweet ballet and stuff is happening in opera it's great and then you've got eva green and she's you know she's like this ingenue and then you got kevin klein and he's in love with her okay i've caught <laughs> and up then, and, then you, and then you got um ian mckellen he's like a state he's backstage stage wait hand no guy. wait what are you talking about tim this is not the 2004 version no, I'm not. I'm talking about the two th the 1929 version. No, you aren't. What <laughs> yes, are you talking about? You didn't think that these characters look, these actors looked exactly like those three people. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, clearly, 
it didn't occur to me at the time. But you got Ricardo Montalban. Wait, He's wait. Did, a... did you really coincidentally <laughs> think that last night when watching it, not knowing Ian Holm had died, that someone looked like Ian Holm? No, not Ian Holm. Ian McKellen. Oh, sorry, Ian McKellen. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I just thought it was. I like I'm sitting there watching it going, holy shit, like this person looks familiar. Holy shit, that person looks familiar. Like they just look so much like All right, well, well, contemporaries. Well, what anyway, happened? It's, I couldn't get it out of my head. Okay, so you got the opera house, right? And the opera house gets sneakily sold to some new buyers and then they when they sell it, the when the owners sell it and it's signed and, and everything's done and they've shaken hands. They're like, oh, and by the way, <laughs> don't go into box five because someone's haunted by a guy who's a phantom. See ya. And they run away like laughing. Yeah. And then we meet Raul, um, Kevin Klein, and he's in love with Christine, who's like an ingenue, you know, she's, a, she's got a nice voice and all that. Um, but she's sort of plays set second fiddle to, uh, what's her name? Carlotta, I think, who mm-hmm. is like the prima singer person, mm-hmm. you know, diva, all that shit. And then let's see the lore about the phantom that haunts that place in the dungeons below the opera house sort of is a thing in all of the, you know, the actors and ballerinas and stagehands. They all know about that. So it's, it's cool and fun. And I guess the story really, really fundamentally is that Raul wants to marry Christine and Christine basically is like, I can't because I'm I'm married to the opera. But what she really means is that she's under the spell of the phantom. And he is kind of, what would you say? He's kind of, it's like a weird almost curse type thing where he's like. It's like a he, grooming curse. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So or, she or, suddenly can sing really magnificently. Yeah, it's almost like the Rosemary's Baby thing, too, of I'll promise you fame and fortune. If right, you're... right. Um, and and then he also starts, he, the, the Phantom basically starts saying to everybody around, he's like, if you don't let her be the prima, you know, opera, whatever you call it, um, I'm going to, like, kill people. Yeah. And he fucking does. And he also holds her. He drops her, a chandelier on the audience. He holds her uh, hostage or captured and mm-hmm. has all sorts of demands for her. He's, uh, you know, quote unquote, in love, in lust, whatever is appropriate yeah. of the I'm time. I'm sorry. I just rolled my eyes really hard. Yeah. Yeah. I know. That's that's why I had to specify, too. Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, But works in the horror sense, for sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, and and then there's a big, uh, big climactic, um, f- you know, flame torch mob showdown right. in the catacombs that he lives. Yeah, it's they cool. sort of do two things. They do like double chase, right? Like Christine is has been kidnapped by him, and so Raúl and some other dude are like trying to get down in the dungeons and and save her, and they they've got things that they have to deal with. But then you also have the mob of the like the opera house crew, like stagehands and such, because and this was unclear to me, but it's it's implied that the Phantom hung one of the stagehands that knew too much about him. Mm-hmm. 
And so that stagehand's brother, who's also a stagehand, is like gets the mob together and they get angry and they go into the dungeons too. Yeah. And then they chase everybody out and get him. And yep. man, do they get him. Yeah. Poor guy. They beat him up. <laughs> As well, a... he's a dick. I mean, let's be honest. <laughs> right. <laughs> also, his name's Eric. It's like lame. He's just I so it's sad but like pathetic in a way. That's what I mean. Like poor totally. Guy. That's all I mean. Um, um, and that's that's really it. Yeah, great. Right? Uh, all like, right. Woohoo. Well, Tim, I, I there was something I really was looking forward to. I wanted to ask you a, a specific aspect of this film that I would just be so excited to hear you describe a detail about it, and mm-hmm. rather than put it in a different section up front. Um, because, you know, a lot of times we associate with Phantom of the Opera, the famous, uh, the, the mask that he wears over mm. his uh, face. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so this, this mask is not like the one in the musical, that kind of classic, like white, uh, just kind of plain white half face cover mask. No, it's not. How would you describe Tim? I would love so much to hear you describe the mask that the Phantom wears in this film. Well, I would couple it with how I would describe all of his apparel as borderline, if not just blatantly offensive. And why is that? So, and we can get more in depth, but there, it seems to me, my impression is that they were going for a, I'm going to put this in very large quotations, an oriental look. Which is offensive in of a, in and of itself, and so the mask is bizarre. It's <laughs> this is why I fuck. wanted to ask you. <laughs> I mean, how the fuck do you describe it? <laughs> That's why I wanted to ask. Okay, so it's it's a little bit like those almost mm, the like frosted like eighties masks that had like makeup on them that, that you see in a lot of movies that bank robbers use. It's kind of got that dead eyed frosted thing going on. Cause it's a little, it's slightly, Oh, a translucent or what is it even? Is it a frog? Is it a, it's a man's face, but it's cut off. At the cheek and below. So under the nose and down, it's cut off. But there's like, (laughs) there's like a little curtain. (laughs) It's like the weirdest little tissue skin flap thing. Yeah. That like is that like hangs like two inches. Yeah, just over his mouth. (laughs) But it like goes from ear to ear. It's anyway, so, I just thought it was so, so bizarre and distracting. But it's like he's got a little. Anyway, just wrap it up. He's, he's got, got like a little a, mouth a fez, He's got a little fez as part of the mask, like built in. Like it's so weird. It's it's it's, it's more than a fez because the other dude has a legit fez. It's it's a little. I don't know what you would call it, but it's like a little um, skull cap. Essentially, <laughs> yeah, but like, but look, it's 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 got this. I mean, I just don't know. I don't know the the um, terminology well enough. But it's an Asian styled little skull cap. Yeah, and then just kind of, yeah, a weird like he's wearing pretty nondescript, just you know, robes man, face. Kinda. That's just oh, the dude, face. the face is is upsetting. <laughs> yeah, it looks like if kinda... I saw that. If you were Christine, like, this is why I think this is 
this is a horror film. I mean, it, it is a horror film because can you imagine being an audience member then and seeing that? You'd be like, what the no, fuck? No, are you talking about the mask or his face? I'm still talking about the mask. Both. But, but you're I'm talk- talking about the mask first. Okay. You see that and you'd be like, that's terrifying. I thought it was and, like, I thought the mask was though, I thought it was supposed to be like, that was just something that you could buy at a party favor store in the 20s. That's how it appeared to me. That's, uh, that's the kind of question. idiosyncraticness I, of it. I don't know. I don't know. That's like, a, that's it, It's an interesting question. <laughs> Anyway, that's why I want to bring it up up front because this was really just just plaguing me. What? Well, here's the thing. Actually, the masquerade scene is a good indication of what types of masks were popular and around. Yeah, and this is not one of them. This I don't is think totally they would have different. Put it in though. Anyways, we've been going. Let's let's we, let's, we got to get into it here. All okay. right, let's talk <laughs> about. Our, let's get in our first section titled "What Worked." What worked? What worked for you? What worked for you? I mean, just an overall thing. I said, yeah, it's it's cool overall, like the vibe overall, all that. But I do think it's whether it's this or Hunchback of Notre Dame, like Notre Dame. I see how this is it's like the Notre quintess- Dame. <laughs> okay, Ryan. Both, yeah. Notre Dame. Sorry. Uh, francophiles um (laughs) but it's the quintessential like i don't know flawed person story or whatever but but in the way that we all like have that side of us like it doesn't matter like whatever that aspect is of yourself that you know you're you're you know uh not comfortable with or whatever you know it's like something we all have yeah whatever that is you know, even on an unconscious level, but when we're at the worst of the worst experiencing whatever that is, I feel like this movie is just about that. This is like a horror movie about that, you know? So I get why, uh, it's just, it's just kind of cool. This works as, even though it's a story that's been told again and again and again and again in many forms, it's neat just to kind of look at this as the, the OG quintessential story about that. Yeah, I agree. Cool. I agree. You know what it reminds me of a little bit is Willard. <laughs> yeah, first thing that comes to mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, because he's yeah, right. Yeah, like he's he's what do you what what was the term you used for Willard? He's a misanthrope. Yeah, Willard is kind of the in between of um, Phantom of the Opera and Psycho. <laughs> Right. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I think the story is fine. And I I mean, obviously, well, and because we only we watched the, the shorter version of this, it does feel like there's a lot more to the story that we just don't get like you could i felt like watching i could feel that there's more story hold on tim i i completely forgot sorry maybe finish that thought but i meant to in the summary up front go over what all the different versions are oh jesus yeah yeah you want to do that is that break it down real quick okay god real quick i'm sorry guys (laughs) thanks for bearing with us but this is and hold that thought please tim because there's something about this story um okay okay guys so maybe you've done some research on your own or whatever if you try to watch this with us or you've seen it before. 
So, and, and please, I, I, I'm not the definitive source on this. This is, I'm probably wrong in some of what I'm saying here. This is kind of just what I've gathered. I've listened to half of the commentary on it by a, a big, big fan of it. Whatever I could find online that I digested. Um, but anyways, yeah, so there's, the film originally came out in 1925 as a silent film. And then... Uh, Which, wait, just to for my own clarification... When you say it came out as a silent film, you it you specifically mean that it would be shown in theaters with like an a live in-house like organist or something, right? I don't know the history of silent films as far as how often that was done or not or if there was okay. ever. I don't either. But um yeah, but that, it, let's say conceivably at least some of the time that's how it was There shown. was no there's no sync sound. Correct. Um, so then uh, it kind of became in vogue at the end of the 20s when 1930 was rolling around that studios would take their big tentpole films or films that they saw, you know, where they could do this with and um, update them with sync sound. So mm -hmm. they reshot a bunch of the scenes, even like recast a couple of the parts, like one of the parts, something like that. I think it's a different actress who plays um, what's the original uh, Charlotta in the original, I think is different mm -hmm. between the two versions um, hmm. and okay. shot shot actual dialogue scenes, too. And came and re-released it in 1929. At the end, and uh, at the way end of 1929, it got its first release in December. So that's why it's also referred to as a 1930 version, um, because most people saw it, and that's when it got its bulk of its release. Okay, 19... so its second version was one version, but gets called both a 29 and or a 30 version. Correct. Oh, that's confusing. And but okay. so, so there now, are two versions so far. And now, yes. But when we refer back to the 2930 version now, it's not actually, this is, this is where it was a little confusing for me, but I don't think it was actually, it's not, you know, the one that we watched clearly wasn't a sync sound version. So apparently only half of the sync sound, the audio of the sync sound exists. So since the whole version of the whole uh, sync sound soundtrack doesn't exist in its entirety. They've uh, the better quality film print that exists is still the 29 version oh versus God. the 25 version, which only exists in 16 millimeter. And as I already said, apparently has more story elements to it. Um, and also distinguishment from it too, between the two versions is uh, when they originally shot the film, a lot of times what they do in their big films is they would, I didn't get exactly why, but they'd have a second camera next to the main camera as close as possible that for something about the foreign release versions that they need a second Whoa. camera for. I don't, I didn't get exactly why. Um, but anyway, so the, the 1929 version is also made up of sort of these slightly second angle shots a lot of the times too. Um, because I guess, oh, I guess it's because, yeah, because that was the the film print that they had access to that was still existing. That was also in 35. Um, wow. So the version that's most commonly seen today, even though the 25 version is available just as much, is that 29 version, but not the sync sound version that was originally released. Which is shorter and has new cut scenes in it. Yeah. Um, Actually, yeah. it made me you, what you're saying makes me realize something that was confusing in the movie and clarifies that in this version that we watched, Carl, there's a scene where Carlotta's mom 
shows up and is she's like, my daughter is fucking pissed off and she's she needs this, this, and this, and like that's not part of the sort of known story and so i'm watching it going like i've seen the musical like i know this story sort of well enough and i'm like who the fuck is this character like <laughs> carlotta's mom is it? like i know that scene is a big scene in the musical where carlotta shows up and she's like i'm not fucking going out there and doing this yeah. shit if you don't like meet my demands kind of thing she's like very diva-y but then they, in this version they have the mom so it, it makes sense that potentially what happened is they recast carlotta but they only had her for you know, a couple of the onstage scenes. And so they had to cast another actress to play her mom in replacement for a scene that probably already existed with the I mean, previous <laughs> actor. Like, it makes sense because, like, knowing that, it's like, oh, I bet that's what happened. That right? is they, likely, but I don't know specifically. I don't know, I know specifically, I, but I, I know, it kind of goes, oh, that that tracks potentially. A lot of the big um, performance scenes, like the big opera scenes, those were, that's new footage because they were, wanted to, like, have sync sound to that to sort of make it like people were experiencing the musical mm. more. Interesting. Um, cool. Okay. So those are the two versions that came out and um, on the, the Blu-ray they have, you can listen to like half of the, the sound sync version that does exist. Oh, okay. That's kind of neat. Um, hmm. But anyways, now upon their actual release, it gets even more confusing. Oh shit. Because the film was shot originally at both 24 frames per second and 20 frames per Per second and i guess everything in between two so there's two different speeds it's projected at the 24 frames one goes a little quicker um and maybe is a little smoother to modernize and mm-hmm. then the and then the original is a little slower but uh might be truer speed in some parts like it sort of depends on the the shot that you're watching which what actually might look better or not but now there's and remember at this time if i'm not mistaken at this time cameras are hand cranked so yeah. your cameraman is you know he's keeping a very specific pace and i say he because there probably were no women doing that at the time um and so that sort of was the skill is is how steadily you, rhythmic you could keep your cranking. But, and so when you play it back, let's say there's a really exciting scene and then there's a lot of energy and everything. I think often what ends up happening is one of two things, obviously, either he's slowing down because he knows that when they play it back, they want the energy of things moving faster or he's getting excited along with the cast and he's cranking a little too fast. I want to give them more credit than that. It's like you have one job like to go at a specific speed. (laughs) (laughs) But but so if you're ever wondering kind of when you watch these old movies, why there is that feel sometimes things are like, whoa, you're like, whoa, what the fuck? But it is it is a product of the cranking speed not really being uh Close enough to the playback speed, so you get a variation in in how it looks when it's it, played back at a at a you know consistent rate. It wasn't thought of as a fixed thing, so it actually was like a subtle creative choice being done. I don't think totally. it was necessarily yeah. Well, accidental. and that's what I mean. It's like they're doing it sort of by feel, but we are playing it back at a constant speed. Especially so, and, when it's digitized. Right. So so anyways, those so and within those, whether what speed you choose to watch it at, what playback rate, there's <laughs> right. different recorded soundtracks. Oh, th- right, right. Throughout the sort of the re-releases that the film has gotten. 
What a mess. <laughs> right? So it's so yeah, and what made me remember this just now, and I'm glad we went over it, is if you're starting to bring up a story point, it's hard to say that that is a definitive mm-hmm. knock on the film when there's no definitive version and we did not do our our just desserts, and that's not the right phrase, but we didn't do whatever. <laughs> due our, diligence, our, I due think. Due diligence. And, um, <laughs> and uh, watch the 25 version. So so, so you're right. I mean, to th- my point in bringing up sort of the potential kind of like holes in story is not a criticism. It's right. just sort of contextually you can kind of, if you know the story even sort of broadly, you can kind of see that the version we watched kind of – you know, there feels like there are potentially holes in it a little bit. Um, well, what works? I want to, what, what were you getting to? What, what worked? Well, what was I getting to? <laughs> oh, that sort of in spite of that, the story does track, right? And And like the main sort of beats work well with each other. Um, I think despite some other stuff that we'll talk about. Um, But it's a pretty well-paced and well-constructed story as it plots along. It's like you you get a good sense of place, uh, point of view, and character really quickly. I got to say, like, each of the big quote-unquote scenes, like, I loved all those, and that's sort of what... Maybe, you know, why the, the memory of it could grow as being, you know, I'll, I'll only grow to like it over time. Mm. We got, I think the first time I really sat up, really sat up, there were moments I enjoyed, but the chandelier scene, of course, oh, we were dude, just like, yeah. oh God, like, look how they, it's like you, you forget they're actually doing it and they're doing it in the 1920s. And it's like, as you said, he's killing people, crashing down on people. Yeah. Um, I like, I like in that scene when the, everybody's trying to run out of the theater and a lady, like the first lady to hit the doorway falls over and they just trample her. God. Yeah. Really. Yeah. It captures the madness of it all. Yeah. Um, and then, so what this, this, Films probably most famous for is like if there's a documentary in on the 1920s, you'll uh, or silent film, you'll see the shot is revealing taking off the mask we tried to describe and revealing um, the actual Lon face. Cheney's. Lon Chaney's yeah. uh, wonderful makeup job that he does on, by himself mm-hmm. um, or he designs. Um, but Tim, that was like God. It's just so incredible watching something that's what you know going on a hundred years old and i got like the kind of like ah you know when the reveal happened it is shocking i was Um, like i could i knew it was coming like you could kind of sense that it's about to happen yeah and i you know she kind of creeps up behind him and i I literally in the if you had been in the room that you you, what i my reaction was like ooh, 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 here it comes here it comes here it comes ah and then it happens you're like whoa (laughs) yeah it's the design it's still effective like it looks like whatever that sort of just plausible line is it goes just beyond it right you know in a way that's really horrifying Um, well they did a couple smart things too because remember in the opening scenes when the ballerinas have come off stage and they're all kind of talking they're like oh we think we saw the phantom blah blah and it's all this sort of lore about it and one girl says um you know, somebody's like, what do you look like? And she's like, oh, he was horrifying. He had no nose. There was no nose. And then another girl goes, no, no, no. He had a nose. It was a really long nose. So they kind of set up this mystery thing. And so we're, once we've met 
the Phantom, but the masked version, we're kind of waiting to get that thing, like to get the reveal of of the mystery. And so we've the the priming of the pump from a story point of view is really good, right? Like having the chorus, so to speak, kind of give us some context for what's going on in a fun, exciting way. Yeah, is really good. Like and it's it's very very like of the time, you know, play style storytelling. And you putting it that way makes you realize there is something really brilliant about the design where you see you can kind of, if you just get a glance of it, you understand how you could project either no nose or a large nose. It's just right. kind of not generic, but there's just some kind of... There's an ambiguity to yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Anyway, it was just fun to have like a super old movie actually give me a little like kind of reaction. I mean, I was yelling for sure. (laughs) They milk it so much; it's great. Like her sneaking up, trying to pull it, um, pull it off. I love that. There's a few things that are just for me. It's like the they're just very specific of the era, right? And and they're really even some of them are dorky to me from a a kind of a step back objective way but but i really like them for example you know this is the era coming out of stage and vaudeville and they're really especially in early film they were really kind of holding over the style of what acting was of that vaudeville time so you Mm -hmm. have you know I forget what it's called specifically, but you basically have tableau movements, right? So like certain body uh, positioning is an, is a very specific indicator of certain emotions. So, you know, I'm scared, hand, you know, your um, back of your hand goes to your forehead, right? Oh, no. Or like there's certain like gestures of like of like I'm troubled and, you know, one hand is is outstretched and has is closed and the other hand is open it's like there's a bunch of those that were really really specific and this movie has a lot of them like it's just a style of the time and like from you know if you're kind of just looking at it without knowing that stuff i think you kind of go oh it's weird and like why are they standing that way or whatever but it's cool it's like it's such a specific genre into it uh, in and of itself of that time that it's it's somewhat i think it's uh it's pleasing because you're like oh that's what acting was then like that's good acting i think what it's so neat about it is it sort of acts as a natural gateway to a certain kind of acting that's just sort of can be done or not depending on the the style and tone of the film but Mm -hmm. it's that kind of like, yeah, if, if, you know, let's say we've set the standard in this kind of acting era of hand over your head to show something, um, you can see that like uh, one of my other favorite scenes was when the Phantom's overhearing um, Christine and what's his face? Raul. Le, yeah. Uh, Ledoux, Ledoux? No. Raul? Yeah. Raul, the love interest. Yeah. Um, sorry. Yeah. When uh, the Phantom's overhearing them on the roof and he's just like... It's it's like I wanted it's hamming it up, but it works. It's like it 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 lend his acting style is just so much fun. It's like the kind of thing where you want to see the person like God, who's 
forget what movie it was, the kind of actor where they're being, where it's like they're being genuine because they have such an outward, because they have such like an outward emotionality to them and sincerity to their emotionality. Like what we might think of as face value as being like, um, yeah, over the top or too much. It's actually working because it's, 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 they're still putting their heart into something that's mm. so just kind mm-hmm. of outward and um, maybe physical. Um, yeah. And you just buy it because, I don't know, yeah, just really, I'll say good casting. Um, and in, in that uh, Lon Chaney, he works so well within that sort of style <laughs> that you set up. <laughs> yeah, there's a moment when, you know, Christine and him are in the, in his little, whatever, his little abode. And she, I don't remember exactly what she's done, but she's kind of she's re, rebuked him, right? She's like Mah, about him, and he does this thing where he kind of like he like puts his hand up to his face, it's like in a fist, and he he kind of like looks down and he walks over to a wall and like one foot up on the step, and he like leans against the wall, and it's super dramatic, <laughs> but it it works because like they can't say. I'm upset, right? Like mm-hmm. the, it's there's some the, the translation that ends up happening just through the body language has such an energy to it. And I think that at the time people who could really push that energy out through these movements were the ones who were considered great. Yeah. Right? That was what made them great. Right. And so it's a it's a pretty cool just modality, I guess, of expression. I think it was actually um Anthony Perkins, who I was thinking of when I was trying to remember the oh, actor yeah. who like you, you know, it might seem like it's a lot, but no, he's literally, he's being so sincere in his acting. Yes. No, you specifically, you spoke about that in the first psycho when he gives his monologue while eating the sandwiches. Mm-hmm. And we remember we were talking about like, holy shit, he's in another like in in somebody else's hands in a different script we would be like you are overacting like yeah. you're being over the top and it's annoying but in that he's so in it and he's so committed to that energy and it's just him is that energy like right yeah and i think that that's sort of what's ha- a lot of uh, in this movie what's happening it's a, there's um, a, d- a distinguishment and i don't know like I want to use that as a as a touchstone for the kind of acting Lon Chaney does, but then there's something like similar and different that let's say like Jack Nicholson brings to The Shining. Um, mm. So mm. There, there, I, whatever that I, I I don't want to necessarily go down that track, but there's also that could be a way to look at it too. I think yeah, I think kind of what we're boiling it down to is like presence mm-hmm. and how we absorb that yeah because we've talked um, too about what was uh one of the last films we've watched um under the skin of like so much being done with j- just seeing a, a, bl- a quote-unquote blank face right and like right. <laughs> you know just whatever they're thinking about coming through on yeah at a level yeah it's cool i mean silent films are cool exercises in in you know exploring that stuff um, and something else unique to silent films that I just love so much, and this is true for a lot of them, but the the writing slash speaking style 
of mm -hmm. their lines and therefore the inner titles. God, Tim, I just love it so much. And I was like trying to figure out why different, different ways to put it. I thought was like, you know how we talk about, we've talked about, uh, how the most horrific thing, uh, for us is characters, people who have utter certitude about mm -hmm. something and they're unflappable. This is like the kind of fun, I don't want to say good, but kind of like the, an enjoyable aspect to that side of where if you have a kind of era and a people, which we all are by default in a certain regard, but just in retrospect, we see it, um, who act in such a way where it's like their reality is the way of doing things. You know, this is it. There's, there's a certain kind of confidence or just presence or something that that brings or like accepting of, of the state of things that just is, I don't know, a certainty behind what they're saying. There's like little doubt in their minds, you know, mm -hmm. as far as like here, I, some examples like, and then just combined with the kind of the, the descriptive style too. Mm -hmm. So some lines I wrote down, I liked, uh, his face is like leprous parchment. <laughs> Christine, tonight I placed the world at your feet. You will triumph. All of Paris will worship you. Just like, yeah, no doubt about it. you'll triumph. All of Paris will worship you. And then the underlying thing to that being, of course, that's a good thing that everyone would want, you know, right, right. <laughs> just that, that kind of unquestioning certitude. Um, yeah, it's interesting. It's really distilled, but it's, it's in these broad, big strokes. Yeah, exactly. Um, I put it as they're like satisfying platitudes. It's mm -hmm. like go, going going back to like looking at the definition of platitudes and thinking like, well, that's a really interesting idea, actually. Um, but uh, yeah, what's oh, another line I wrote down? Maybe for long weary months I have awaited this hour so that which is good within me, aroused by your purity, might plead for your love. Like that gets at that, that horror side of it though, but is still just so, so good of a certainty. Like, how are you going to convince that guy otherwise? You know? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I think that that's one of the successes of the movie too, is what is the actual horror of this movie? And it's this spell idea that, that there's this entity that can cast a spell and essentially, you know, make you do things. And like, that's a scary thing. And I think we can talk about later the, the negative side of how they depicted that. But that at its most sort of primal level is a scary thing. And you see it throughout horror. It's like you don't want to be under the spell of the thing. It's, it's, it's the same idea in, in its really basic form. It's, you see this all the time. You know, whether it's the spell of the Red Scare and, you know, having your mind infected by, a, a, you know, evil ideas or it's the spell of like an actual infection that like rots your brain and turns you into a zombie. It's like any of that loss of your own free will control is a really primal horror. And this is specifically tapping into that along with this sort of lore of the underworld. I mean, there's a reason that Faust is the play that they're doing, right? Like, it's about going into the underworld. Yeah. And so, like, all of that stuff is, like, 
we are we are humanly at the potentially at the mercy of the infection of evil. <laughs> yeah. Right. Whatever. However, we de- like whatever we define evil as. But that's that's a running theme in this and in horror in general a lot of the time. Right. That I, I like, mean, are you going to let it get to you kind of thing? And how do you fight against it? And who are your adversaries and who are your, you know, who's on your side, that kind of stuff. So it's all there. And, you know, this is a it's really distilled, right? Like you've got your good guy, Raul, who she sort of I mean, he's sort of a he is a reflection of the of the phantom, right? Like both Raul and the phantom want to control Christine. And Christine is saying, yeah, you know, I kind of want to do my own thing. Right. Right. Like, I'm not against either of you in a way, but like, I am not yours. Right. And it is that battle throughout of like, who really is good? And is she allowed to have autonomy? What's at the heart of it for me? um, Yeah. And like what you said in there, I actually connected it to, I told you I was listening to uh, a new old uh, Neil Young song. Mm-hmm. There's a, a block of lyrics that go love. It's called love is a rose. Love is a rose, but you'd better not pick it. It only grows when it's on the vine handful of thorns. And you know, you've missed it. Lose your love. When you say the word mine, as soon as you add wow. that possessiveness quality to it, which is at that, that horror at the heart of this film, you which know, which is also why possession is the best movie ever. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, I mean, that came through to me, like what, when I felt that kind of, Oh God, that, that horror of love, um, twisted or thought of as, you know, possessiveness thought as love, mm-hmm. whatever in his note where, you know, first he serves as don't take off my mask and I won't hurt you kind of thing. But then his second, uh, sentence is you will be free as long as your love for the spirit of Eric overcomes your fear. So first of all, there's the whole thing that's of him conditional talking. Yeah. <laughs> right. But like how twisted it's like, that's it right it's, there. Like, no, I won't be. Up. First of all, what are you even doing saying I'll be free when I'm literally trapped down here? <laughs> and right. like, and then there's the whole added thing. I of, think that we call that gaslighting. I think right. that we've, we've coined this, not we, but that term is it's out there. There's something th- I wonder if there's a more specific way to put it or if it's still gaslighting. I always think it's like the I mean, it's still gaslighting, but um, when it's done intentionally versus not like this is just, mm. you know, his this is he's just saying how the world works as far as he sees, you know, he's just going along with it. Granted, he's been in a mental asylum and all that and is true murder or whatever. And he but, spells his name Eric with a K. I mean, that is fucked up. Hey, I know a great Eric with a K. I um, do too, actually. But though, <laughs> but the, no, the, the, the scary thing about it is that he's talking about Eric in the third person. I know. <laughs> he's Eric, guys. Um, he's so definitely as, nuts. As, like, as, that's why I think it's so interesting. This idea of like sympathy for the for the phantom is a very touchy thing it's but it's like tim i hold a gun to your head and i say um all you have to do is love me and i won't shoot you like what do you <laughs> like what do you do with that like yeah that's not good <laughs> but just like the trap that that puts you in like come on eric yeah well i don't know man i mean beyond the sort of these 
storied things, the the things that really, really stick out to me as like, holy shit, are the set design and the colorizing sort of, uh, not colorizing, but the color techniques that they're using throughout. It's like, that, that red, green, blue filters that make those colors come through. Ex- yeah, exactly. And they do some really cool stuff. Like they mess around with it. They just, they don't mm-hmm. just go straight up like this scene's red, this scenes blue like they do change it up there are scenes that are like that but oh no yeah so no there's there's two things you're talking about there's the tinting and then there's the colorized sequence right yeah and both both those things like the use of those things is i think really fucking cool in particular the red costume that he has i love that costume by itself is incredible. I wanted to say that. Like, that was one of the standout sequences for me was the big ball, the big party scene. No like, question. Him emerging with that skull mask and everyone, like, Dude. parting, like, the sea as he heads down the stairs. Oh, God, it's so good. It, and then, it, yeah, it and then the, the shock of having color. Like, great, it's just the three right. colors, but they, they know that those are their colors and they work with them. It, now, so I was trying to figure this out. When when they when they film that, are they in post drawing in the color? Is it an actual thing, or or what are, are they doing? A trick of taking out the uh, blue channel, so to speak. They're using a filter so that on the film when it's filmed, you're only exposing the red channel, and that's why you get dependent on who's in a particular costume color. Is that how that works? Does yeah, that make sense? It is. I'm pretty sure it's that ladder of where it's, it's like... It's a processing thing, right? It's, it's like how I've seen there's uh, footage from like World War One, like marches mm-hmm. surrounding World War One that I've seen that are color. And I think it's called like a three-strip color process. And mm-hmm. I don't want to, I don't want to guess because it is just guessing beyond that. Yeah, it's not a thing I know much about other than knowing that when you shoot in black and white, for example, and you want to change the contrast in scene, you would one of the ways they would do this is to you would have your filter plates in front of the lens. And so you could have a basically a gel, right? You would have like a red gel, a, a green gel, and a blue gel. And if you wanted to change the contrast mid-scene for effect, you would paint the actor one of the those two colors, red or blue, but it's in black and white, so you can't tell, right? Yeah. But when you remove the blue filter, the the contrast changes because suddenly you the blue is it's like uh like three uh, D glasses, right? Like when you you have two sets of images, and when they're both on top of each other. You can see depth, right? But I'm guessing... when you take one away, it creates a, a cool contrast effect. You see a di- you see things differently. And I think back in the day, like this is, I mean, really rudimentary knowledge of this stuff on my part. But back in the day, they, you know, photography had been around for what? I don't even know. Not that long, Mm-mm. right? Late 1800s, mid late 18, somewhere in there, right? So 
they were still just fucking experimenting with shit, which is so cool to think about. They're like, hey, let's try this thing. Like, and like, it is fun to see knowing that this was, I'm sure all that took money, you know, lots oh, of money yeah. at the time. So just that it's it's fun to, to know that this is a part of that kind of like, you know, the spectacle of um, uh, moving into actual color film, you know. Right. At the time it was like that. The, the, what, they were able to accomplish in their own sort of experimentation. Like the result in this film is fucking great. Right. Like it's so cool looking. Um, like when Raul and the other dude are, are like burning up in the dungeon and yeah. they kind of double filter sort of orange and yellows, but they like do it halfway up. So it's got like a gradient to this. It's like, dude, that's cool. Yeah. Um, so I'd love to know more about how they did all that stuff, but. For another time, I um, I I really loved the whole ending, the big finale set piece from going down into the dungeon through the 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 secret trap passage to the big yes. chase where he like you know falls over on the carriage and then drowns. But just like I remember, we've talked before, Tim, like our love for uh, dungeonous areas and passages, <laughs> like the oh. sewers. Like this is just this is just that through yep. and through like and then there's i loved so much even though i did i didn't quite get uh even though it should have been obvious like she was given that situation where it's like you twist this knob uh this will happen and then you twist this knob this will happen but it just led to um just i, I mean if it was a cool set piece now i can't even imagine it would be like a hundred years ago of just the oh, flooding yeah. just the flooding of that place was incredible like yeah. we've we've like how do they even? I mean, I know like how they do that, but it's just such a feat to, to pull off, like flood, flooding and deflooding, um, huge, you know, catacomb sets. It's incredible, and then just that coupled with the, as I already said, the torch mob, just classic. Mm. See it, great, love it, always. Yeah, I think that yeah, that sort of leads me to like the other big thing that I really love is just the general actual special effects. Mm-hmm are really good. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, mechanized shit all over the place, like, people floating, people flying. Like, it's it's so fucking cool. Yeah. Boats <laughs> boats in, in underground fucking canal. Like, dude. Oh, God, I got to mention that the part. The snorkel? Yeah, the snorkel. <laughs> it was so good. Brilliant. <laughs> Him pulling the guy off the boat. Uh, dude, yeah. it's all really, really great. I just just be them being up on the, the roof with, like, his cape flapping around. Like, all of that just looks so cool. Right. I love that scene, yeah. And I love just, in general, him going at his organ, just playing away. It's <laughs> yeah. it's kind of fun. Like, now we, we've been in the world of smartphones for so long now. It's just our world. But you kind of go, like, what did people... What do people do? Like, what do, what do people do when they can't just get the the dopamine dopamine boost in their hand? Like, how do they? <laughs> how, like, what what are they You know, not that people don't still rage sure. on their instruments, but you know, <laughs> it's just like something about. I don't know if it's endearing. It's just interesting. Just the idea of now a nineteen twenties person 
being like, I, and the, the phantom character specifically, Eric, <laughs> deciding <laughs> something I do is I fill my day with music and I love music. And it's just yeah. like the perfect thing for his character of being the, the emotional centered type of just having to let it out, pounding right. on his organ. Uh, I, I love those moments too, because <laughs> every time he's sort of like, he's basically having an argument. And he's like, he gets to a point where he's like, I don't like my emotions. I'm going to run over to the organ and start playing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's, <laughs> it's such a funny little device. Yeah. Or it's just, it's relatable in the sense too. Like, this is my, just let me chill. Give me my, my time in my safe space a bit. Hold on. I, I don't know. Just let me go play my guitar. I don't know. You know, <laughs> it's great. Very relatable. <laughs> Um, yeah, I love the trap door early on. Yeah, that... with that that one character actor like <laughs> John McCallan. Yeah, yeah. Oh, right. That's who you meant, Ian McCallan. <laughs> <laughs> that whole sequence cracked me up. I mean, yeah. dude, the all of the dungeon stuff when Raul and the other dude are going to try and save Christine, the the look of those shots, uh, in particular, a few of them are amazing mm-hmm. like there's one hallway that they creep down that is like super cool it's it's got sort of um sections of of light like shadow light shadow light shadow and it's a long hall and it's at an angle and you see light at the end of the hall like fucking really cool and then there's a the time when they have to jump through the little hatch and yeah. they, they, dude, they jump. That's like a 10 foot fall. And they yeah. like do it in real time. It's like, I thought of you. Fuck. I was like, that guy's breaking ankles. I thought of you during that, just kind of being like, whoa, wait, what? Like, that can't be. <laughs> they fell like quite a bit there. Yeah. What? But the, like, the shat, the, the, the pyramid of light that is caused by that, you know, how they light that set piece. Very painterly. Super cool looking. The the opening shot of the film after the title is this sort of triangle depth. You know, there's depth to it, and you know the worker guy comes through. That's a from the twenty five print confirmed. So that's oh, it's, is it? It's one of the things that they like. We're like, okay, this is going in there no matter what. For whatever dude, reason. it is so good. Yeah, the shadow work that they use in there is super fucking good. Contrast. Yeah. There's there's also the shot where Raúl and the dude are down there and they're looking around and it's super dark and they are cast in green light, green filter. And then there's a completely blacked out hallway that way, way deep into the hallway, you see a a face light up and he comes to the foreground and his face is not cast in that green filter light. So I think what they actually did is they shot two, they put the camera in the same place, but they did it, they shot it twice and they just overlapped the film so it's essentially like shooting a plate and having you're comping in the guy who's down the hall so you can get this cool lighting effect because only his face is just a floating head until he gets right. to the foreground. That was so it's neat. It's just fucking cool. Like <laughs> that kind of shit, dude, that they're coming up with that is amazing. Right. <laughs> I just that those are the things to me that sustain you through it because, you know, there are times when it I sort of was like, OK, OK. Like, let's let's carry on here. Mm-hmm. But like those shots really are amazing. <laughs> They're amazing to look at. Well, uh, should we get into more? Uh, OK, when you're feeling OK, OK, let's carry on here and move on to what did not work. Yeah. All right. All right. Yeah, I'm good with this section. 
What did not work? It's not ready yet. Seems to work okay. No, something important's missing. What did not work? <laughs> well, I mean, I guess to just follow on that thought, there is a lot of air in this movie mm-hmm. where I'm like, we've kind of been given everything we need to know. And then it's like time to get on with it. And they just don't. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of just plodding along. I also like was a little bummed out, I guess, at, you know, the whole sequence of Raul and the guy, the other dude, I can't remember his name. I'm sorry. Um, they, they, there's no sense of urgency in those scenes to me. Mm-hmm. Like they're kind of scooby doing along. They're <laughs> creeping along like doop, doop, doop. And it's like, let's go. Like mm-hmm. she's in danger. Let's, let's pick it up. As Just much a as you bit. love Scooby-Doo. Oh, love Scooby-Doo. But this is not the time or place for Scooby-Dooing around. That's right. Like, come on. <laughs> She's in trouble. Go Even though this her. is Let's kind go. of like a classic Scooby-Doo story, if there ever was one. <laughs> it really is. This, this is how Scooby-Doo came Is there to a be. Scooby-Doo and the Phantom of the Opera? <laughs> there should be if there's not. <laughs> oh, man. I mean, Ian McKellen is definitely shaggy. Like, let's be honest. Yeah, anyway, so... Um, that plottingness, I guess, I just, I got kind of bored. I was the like, plotting, yes. plotting. Yeah. I was like, come on. I could like, see, let's see, go. see, that's where I felt more conflicted of being like, if I was seeing this in a theater in better circumstances, not questioning if this was the best version to be watching, mm. like I could just <laughs> yeah. see myself and, and because of how much I loved the kind of actual core you know happening scenes i could just see those as appropriate like breathers but still being under the spell of watching these actors go through it all go through the motions um so that's why i didn't necessarily yeah it even though yeah i agree it's i'm ambivalent enough about you know making it official um yeah yeah so i have a question for you did it feel like the reveal of the Phantom's face came too early to you? No. Because, man, I felt like it sh- – we sh- – I don't know. I felt like that should be kind of like an end of the second act kind of thing or maybe midpoint kind of thing. And it felt like a really early – it came really early. It and happens – And it kind of bummed me out. It, it's – we don't even see – I don't even think we see like the Phantom without the mask until half an hour in. Right. That's what I mean. I feel like that's too early. Oh, oh, you mean okay, you're not talking about the the face reveal. That's what I'm talking about. You're talking when about the... she takes the mask okay. off of him. That seemed like it happened too early nope. in the film. For for, for me, me it was like because it took half an hour to get to the Phantom at all kind of and then um <laughs> I, I don't know. I was ready for it when it happened. Yeah. I just think it was too early. I wanted to, like, worry about it more. I could I could absolutely see, you know, also liking it a lot. The juice I wonder, d- d- I can't a remember, more. like, I saw the musical when I was, 
Oh my God. I don't know. I was in uh, sixth grade. However old you are then. <laughs> yeah. 12 or something or 11 or whatever. So I don't remember where it happens in that, but I think it's late. I think that like she, in that version, there's a whole, the whole second act is essentially her kind of being totally entranced with him. I do remember it being, yeah, exactly. Like they play it different where, yeah, don't show his face. So she does become like kind of actually more, yeah, entranced by him. Yeah. And the kind of like seeing his good side, quote, you know. Right. And I think that the reason that would work in that context is that if you give her time to come around to see the the quote unquote potential good in him when he's got the mask on, that when he takes it off eventually or she takes it off of him eventually – She's not coming from a place of fear and like, uh, you know, combativeness. She's saying, I want to see what's underneath because I have sympathy for you. Yeah. And that's more tragic and sort of like if he's like so ashamed of how he looks. It is interesting how, God, I'm realizing maybe I'm. I was kind of often saying, like, for me watching this, I'm like, this is the quintessential, you know, how I described it movie, just the kind of about whatever, that kind of emotional, emotionality, outward emotionality, um, being obsessed with your obsessions. Um, but yeah, it is it, hearing you talk about it and more, I, I guess it does kind of exist in culture more when thought of as the Phantom of the Opera as like, yeah, like, like. See, seeing the good side to someone who's quote unquote disfigured or whatever. Right. Like, so th I think that's what's interesting about this version is that that component does not exist. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, and, th and, that's and what I'm realizing now. That's what's and interesting. Why yeah. I put this in this section is because I believe that they're, what they are pointing at in their uh, metaphor is something much, much more sinister, which I mean, is fear of the other. Yeah, I mean, I... And that's why they put him in this Asian sort of garb. They, like, his makeup even, his... his They're all, like, really, really offensive Asian stereotypes, right? Like, kind of the bull-cut, balding thing. Right. It's, it's I mean, these are bad, of-the-time caricature, like, stereotypes that existed then. I mean, they were one step away from just having him have like a Fu Manchu mustache, right? Yeah. Like, and and so at the time, obviously, we see this and we go, "Ooh, that's fucking super racist and like super problematic." At the time, obviously, they don't see it that way because, <laughs> unfortunately, culture was different and shittier. <laughs> And but the you know it was the era of like the 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 mystic Orient you mm -hmm. know and like otherism is is you know there wasn't a lot of cr cross culturalization so it's like in their storytelling they're saying okay what how do we depict something that's scary and evil and has sort of this implicit fear into it it's like you you make him the enemy that's over there that we don't know anything about. Right? Even, yeah, in the depiction of it. And they do little things to back that up. I mean, this happened a lot in that era. It's like even the guy who 
has been who, who's sort of the mysterious dude. Um, uh, let's see his character. He's the guy who goes down with Raul. Um, the, he the ends up being detective? like the, the, the detective guy. Yeah. But even having him be have unfortunately being painted a little bit darker so that he looks more like um, ethnic and having the fez on creates suspicion around his character yep. in that era, which is super fucked up. But that's what they that is how they did stuff like that then. Um. And so, you know, unfortunately, the now I've watched that and it's very hard for me not to be like, Ugh. well, I mean, for like, me, it works by gross. I don't know. I like kind of that that I don't know, f however it plays out, the balance of not having us kind of grow to like him somewhat with Christine, you know, in the other versions mm -hmm. Um but what this one still has is it just you, it puts you in a different place that's interesting because when the the mob is chasing him at the end, you are still the mob is still the bad guy, you know, as far like we're looking. Well, at see, it. that's that's actually something that I think I was conflicted about is because I don't I and maybe this is just because I and you know we live in 2020 when we have optics on this stuff that we are more keyed into. But like my kind of takeaway is like it really is perpetuating the idea of how do you deal with the other that you don't like? Get a mob together and lynch the fuck out of them. And I was like, this feels horrible. Right. I like, mean, that that's what I saw being in, intended. Though. Like, that's what I, that I, I is, know it's intended. That's my point. Yeah, but it yeah. makes me, I don't like it. Like, I certainly don't sympathize with the mob. No, no, that's but that's why I like it in the horror sense because sure. you're going because it's this 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 fear it's the mob fear of going like there is no they're they're acting so um uh you know what's or instantly or uh, mm -hmm. without without thinking and it's just like it's just like their their only reaction is kill it kill it you're right and and you're you're absolutely right and I guess you know the horror of that is. Super effective, especially right now. Yeah. <laughs> right? Right. But it was, I mean, I just think it's, it wasn't, I don't know. That's a good point, actually, <laughs> because it is the horror of that. I think that I'm removing myself from the story and looking at like the context of the filming and the filmmakers and what they were trying to say, mm -hmm. because I think what they were trying to say as filmmakers in that era was when when you encounter somebody who's different and who's other than you get a mob together and kill them. And again, and I, I don't wonder, know if that's true, but like, I gotta that was, wonder we, God, yeah. we, I, this is it why may, I, look, Hey, we may be totally, we have, may have the, I may have the, I'm not going to include you in this. I may have the totally wrong read by seeing that because I'm having a sensitivity about how fucked up that is and how real that is. In I mean, our I, world. I'm just saying, I wonder again, for all we know, that I should even just finish reading the Wikipedia summary of the 25 version. Maybe the 25 version did have mm. more of Christine becoming endeared to him, you know. Well, but also maybe that was the intent of the filmmakers to, to comment on how fucked up that is. Like, mm -hmm. you kind of don't know. Like, maybe they're doing an us where they're like, no, no, we're going to 
make a movie that like really kind of or a get out, I guess, is maybe a better example where it's like, no, we're going to show you why this is fucked up. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that there's a catharsis that gets us to that other than being like, this is kind of tragic. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't think there's a whole lot of uh, firm ground to make that argument personally, but it's possible. Yeah. I think it's much more likely that that was just sort of the way people looked at the world and white people made the film and were scared of things that were different. And so that becomes the horror. Right. And that is double horror for us because we're like gross. <laughs> I mean, as I said, I'm just a horrible person who sympathizes with the bad guys too. We're like, despite the fact that he's kidnapping women, I still think he's pathetic. And it's like totally. sad when he's the King Kong kind of way, sure. you know? Yeah, but King Kong, yeah. He's a gorilla. I mean, he, he's, he didn't ask for it. No. <laughs> no, but w- w- it comes down to like sheer imagery for me. Mob mm-hmm, going mm-hmm. after, you know, senseless mob, senseless planes trying to shoot down, like whatever it is. Like that. Well, and that, actually, yeah. yeah, Frankenstein, I think, does it in a social commentary way. I mean, I know it does. It -hmm. very much is like, look how fucked up mobs are. Like, he's not a monster. The monster is, well, Frankenstein's monster is not the monster of that film. That will always be the go-to, like, this is the (laughs) torch mob. (laughs) Right. But this doesn't feel to me, and like, maybe you're saying, maybe it's in the, the longer version, but it does not feel to me that has that commentary of like, see... This is not how you should deal with it. Right. Yeah. It just feels like, get him. He's the bad guy and he's fucking ugly. And so let's beat the shit out of him. And he tried to, he tried to steal one of our women. I do not think, I did not get that the filmmakers were sympathizing with that point of view. (laughs) I don't think, I don't think we were supposed to sympathize with the mob. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. Yeah. It's, yeah. Hard to know. Um, I mean, yeah, again, it this bothered is, me though. It yeah, didn't it, work for me in that sense. Totally. So, and that's, you know, it's super subjective. No, I could totally see. And I, I, I would side with that. It felt like it just, a decision wasn't there. I'd, mm-hmm. I'd more see that. So whatever we're projecting on it at any given time right. in history is valid. Um, oh yeah. I mean, I'm projecting super hard. Yeah. It's interesting though. So be it. I mean, for me, I mean, it was... it's partially, sorry, side note, it's partially because currently there are people being lynched in our country, like for mm-hmm. real mobs. Yeah, man. And and I I am very sensitive to a, a frightening, I think, a reality that as we progress in taking down institutions that have been held up through system systemic racism that those people aren't just going to go away in fact they're going to go underground and they're going to find other ways to you know uh, what's the word to exert their racism onto innocent total like victims right and they're going to go fuck like you know a new version of the kkk is going to exist because it's going to have more people who are beating that drum yeah and that's fucking scary like the scariest and i'm like how the fuck are we going to deal with that as a as a society yeah 
So I, know. I, I think that my point is, is that watching this movie, because that's a thing that's on my mind, you, I'm projecting that fear in seeing that kind of imagery and you go, right. fuck, right. that's a thing. It's not a thing of the past. Right. That's I super mean, scary. So we'll see. This is <laughs> not to get too down the rabbit hole, but right. This is that's where the, my brain was coming from in in seeing the, this film that way. This is tricky tricky territory, but maybe I'll shed some light while I'm thinking about like the mobs. Um, but what I'm like, of course, that is terrifying. You know what you describe. I'm thinking about that. Um, when I think f further, I'm just as scared as that being perpetuated. If, if, if our response to that is as, um, as, as mob-like as, yes, exactly. I, I, I know that's, I think what's that's, so fucking scary is that we, as a society need to be, we need to find a way to not meet that kind of mob, you know, basal hatred sort of stuff with just being like, well, just fuck them and eradicate them too. It's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> like, I mean, this is, can't this is that. that this, 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 uh, where we're at in history, almost philosoph philosophical human nature debate comes up, you know, and mm -hmm. when talking about the ways of the world a lot, but well, I'll always come back to is I think we underestimate or we can, it's easy to, the effect of the, the, the connectivity that technology has allowed us. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that if, if the, what is it, you know, the, the moral history arc of history, blah, blah, blah. Right. Well, that's um, a good but point in the end, actually, because to put it back into the context of this film, this was their technology, right? Well, this yeah. was the way that <laughs> yeah. a viewpoint and a, and a story perspective got out to lots and lots of people. Like right. the trailer said, you know, like the the theater was mobbed with people in the streets of Broadway trying to get in to see this movie. So like, whether it's this film or the where the theme is more um, more clear and direct in Frankenstein's monster getting killed by a mob, that could mm -hmm. be the back then equivalent of someone shooting a mob attack on their smartphone. Yeah, <laughs> you know? right. That's what I'm saying. It's like, there's this really interesting thing that's happening as we, as artists sort of look back through history and see these markers in time. Yeah. Cause they're set like that was, this is a snapshot of a point of view from a hundred years ago. And we see how this influenced people. It's I think most certainly influenced the director of Frankenstein. And I think probably, you know, was that person was taking aspects of this and saying, well, we can do we, I have a point of view. Let me do my version of that. Mm -hmm. And that became fucking super iconic. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that pushes that, you know, art along. And now we're in, you know, we're in our time. It's like, what are how are we going to do that? And like, how are other artists going to do that same thing and take imagery and tell stories with it that have some sort of point of view at minimum and purpose at best right right so i know even thinking about when it's been done in our lifetime with tim burton's you know homages and frank sure. and weenie and <laughs> edwards right. and edward scissorhands that's still a different perspective from a 
now perspective where totally. you know, I'd right. be interested in. Um, this is pretty things of notey. Are you ready just to move I on guess to that? So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, I didn't really have anything critical other than just sort of those feelings that I was like, and the plottiness, but like, uh, I, I think the only other thing for me, I think, unfortunately, was I did not particularly like the organ score. <laughs> you should have listened really to the another one me. then. Did, I know. Did you check out the was, one at 20 frames per second? Uh, no, I listened to the other score at the 24 frames yeah. for the first like few minutes. And I was like, no, I think I want to do the organ one. So I yeah. went back to the organ one. But now in hindsight, after watching the whole film, I'm like, I think maybe I would have liked the this, this full orchestra thing. Yeah. Ditto. Even though it was a little kind of canned feeling. Yeah. Which, again, that's why the 20 frames per second version actually has like a cool actual orchestra yeah. performance. Yeah. Well. Um, oh, well. I know. So this is like, yeah, it just leaves me with I didn't have much to say it did not work when I still feel like I want to watch the 25 version, watch the... 29 version with a different soundtrack <laughs> maybe ideally uh in the theater someday too that'd be cool yeah yeah I'd that'd like be cool. to revisit this film down the line under those circumstances okay i think that's it let's move on to things of note things of note <laughs> this should be interesting So while I didn't um, make it as far as watching these other versions, I did make it halfway through the commentary on nice. the 29 cut. So the commentary was with this guy, John Marsalis, who uh, is a contributor or runs something like that, lonchaney.com. And is just kind of so the, the kind of guy who like when this does get screenings, he'll be the one to introduce it. It's all about the film. Um so yeah, already kind of talked about um, the the differences between the versions. Um, it's fun, fun little yeah trivia tidbits. So you know the um, number number five is the 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 what is it called the the booth or whatever box That's the box. Thank mm -hmm. you that the phantom would appear in. The number five became a he put it as a Buga boudoir at universal meaning like it had uh there was like a, a dressing room there or in other films that they'd make like they'd cool. kind of make a thing about giving horror actors uh number five rooms booga boudoirs as this guy put it i thought that was funny nice. um Oh, for us people who live in L.A., I thought it was fun. The actress who played um, Christine, she uh, lived on Fairfax Avenue here until she passed away. Ooh. So it's, it's fun. You know, know her time. name is so familiar, and I tried to look at, like, what else she was in that could make me feel like that, and nothing jumps out. So I guess it's just from this. Like, yeah. her name is, you know. She's famous from this, for sure. I forgot what it got into about her, but I did remember it was fun. Um so, okay, this is so, so Tim, the uh, Ian McClellan, as you put it, that guy. <laughs> yeah. So, so the, why I don't say, why I said, why I probably thought you said Ian Holm and not Ian McClellan is because one of the signifying attributes of this guy in this movie was that he's super short, which I don't very think. Very short, I know. Which yeah. I don't get why you'd say Ian McClellan for that. But, um, oh, dude, just his fate. The first close up of him, I was like, whoa. 
Okay, so gets this guy's name. He's a character actor, surprise, surprise, who <gasps> like was in Buster Keaton films and stuff like that. Sweet. And um, there weren't a lot of you know, actors over 60, 70 who'd appear in films, whatever, at the time. So he was kind of a go-to older character actor. His stage name is so good, Tim. Snitz with a Z. Snitz Edwards. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Snitz. Anyway, just wow. that a shout out to old Snitzy. Um, right. uh, I had fun. We were talking about the performance of Lon Chaney in this. Something that the uh, this commentator John Marsalis pointed out, I really appreciated, was you could tell it was Chaney by the way, even when it was just his silhouette, by the way he was acting with his hands, like yeah. that kind of like. Uh, I don't know, flowy finger theatricality <laughs> that he just will look for that when you watch his performance, even beyond just the silhouette scenes. It's just, it's just great. And it's so much fun. Um, we mentioned Lon Chaney made his own, did his own makeup. So that was always kind of like when you went to see the new Lon Chaney movie, a big part of the appeal is like, Ooh, what's his, what's the makeup going to be? There's yeah. always kind of a mystique around that. Um, He's creative guy too. Apparently on set or when he's doing theater, he would draw characters of fellow actors and crew and as well as knit in his sort of in-between time. Cool. Um, so it's fun to think there could be some Lon Chaney knitted items out there um, <laughs> in existence. Uh, this was really neat. So the bed that he, the, that the Phantom puts Christine in. The boat bed? Yeah. Do you, do you hear what that's from or where it was later used? No. It is Norma Desmond's bed in Sunset <gasps> Boulevard. Get the fuck out of here. Right? So that's like, cool. So yeah, Sunset Boulevard, which has all these Hollywood, old oh. Hollywood meta things to it. What a movie. Yeah, I just rewatched it. It's so good. Oh, um, it's so good. But uh, yeah, isn't that fun? That's the F Phantom's bed. <laughs> <laughs> like, so good. Um. And then just as kind of we can, I'm sure, imagine um, this film, like reaction when uh, the that mask came off Tim. Like apparently, yeah, just as you'd expect. Patrons were fainting. Women were screaming. I don't know Dude, why. That's, I that's stupid. That's I know. As soon as I said it, I realized why I specify women. It's just whatever how the commentator <laughs> said it. Yeah. People screamed. Sorry. Patrons fainted. Um, Hell yeah. But just so much fun to, I mean, imagine that kind of like, you know, into uh, The Exorcist when that came out, seeing those anecdotes. Um, the uh, This was kind of fun. The last surviving cast member was um, Carla Lamely, the niece of producer Carl Lamely. Hmm. Um, so Carl Lamely was kind of known, you know, the big, the big producer at the time who would... Um, put a lot of his family and connected family, you know, give them, put them, put them on the payroll. So to speak. Ugh, nepotism. So she was like 15 when she appeared as, um, one of the ballerinas, but she died in 2014. So like when this commentary was recorded, she was still alive. So like up into, you know, this last decade, she was telling stories about the production of this film. Which That's is pretty so, sweet. So neat. And sort of, um, yeah, it really got got me thinking as well as other things. To be curious, this is kind of what I want to ask your thoughts on of like how, you know, in our discussion, we're talking about this, like it's this old thing and look at it as the time. But like when we think of 
just 10 years and how short ago that seemed and just right. think of it in 10 year clumps film is just so young this movie is not old yeah mm-hmm. it's the medium that's young and that just just you know throws me uh throws me in a lot of ways and yeah. like when when thinking about too i brought up uh them speaking in platitudes and like how that's used as a, and just like, Oh, that's, that's something interesting about that. Just, just for a starting off point, I had to like, I looked at the definition of platitude. It's a remark or statement, especially one with a moral uh, content content that has been used too often to be interesting or thoughtful. So the very idea hmm. of a platitude is predicated on time passing and sort of like um uh yeah the words ideas becoming usage yeah yeah the the usage which is hmm. why i don't know it, it it's so so we talk about a lot like how oh because this movie was kind of you know the not 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 the black cat what's the other black and white one walking cat down people. cat people yeah like how that's even though, you know, it's a scene we've seen a hundred times of uh, an unseen figure stalking someone down the street at night. But that is like it, you know. That was the one. That That is the one. You know, <laughs> we, I always say this is its purest and most distilled, right. whether, you know, Halloween, whatever, whatever, whatever. Um, I don't know. So I just got, got thinking of like the idea in terms of platitudes in terms of that were things that are... <sighs> I don't know. I guess the the negative side of 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 platitudes were like it's a good thing in that we evolve, we define things further, but there's truth to platitudes. Love conquers all nowadays. Let's say mm-hmm. that's like mm-hmm. the theme of a movie or someone says it or you hear it at the end of a Beatles song, whatever, that idea. It's like we've lost our connection to that meaning because they've become platitudes and mm. we're sort of almost hyperactive in our, again, there's a, the good side to uh, def, uh, over-defining, but then there's also over-defining, you know, and, and losing track of some of the larger, I don't know, tenants from which we then break down to, to get at, to, 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 to crystallize our moral, you know, standpoint on things, but Right. And the danger is, is that through the platitude, we grow cynicism. Yeah, exactly. And like, that's bad. <laughs> don't just be, don't just because it's a platitude, dismiss the core uh, essence of a thing for the sake of your own cynicism, right. cynicism, right? Like that's, we need to avoid that as people. <laughs> like, and I've... I definitely think, you know, in the last five, 10 years, Five years in particular for me, I I've really tried to move away from cynicism, like yeah. uh, in my personal sort of outlook in life, because I think I used to use it as sort of a like almost like a badge of honor, mm-hmm. and that it doesn't work. It's really tied to you know it's all tied intersectionality. You know, you brought up uh, the world institutions racist. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, but a, a, another way to put it is, um, uh, um, <laughs> forgetting the, uh, uh, toxic masculinity, uh, what's, sure. you know, the, the term of what's, um, uh, sorry, you know, smash the patriarchy that, that way mm-hmm. of looking at it where it's just that same, like, um, I don't know you get what I'm going with it. 
I do. Yeah. <laughs> I do get it. Boy, do I get it. <laughs> um, yeah. No, I mean, I found my- me up at night. <laughs> evolution of things becoming platitudes and mm-hmm. the negative side of that. It's interesting. Mm. And uh, happens very, very quickly, which was, I guess, yeah, how I was tying it to this film and just old films I in general. I think it's kind of like, you know, when Goita comes out with a song at the beginning of the summer. Yeah. And everybody's like, fuck, this song is so good. And then by the end of the summer, they're like, I want to fucking personally murder this song. I don't know what you're talking about. Remember the song? It's like... Some, uh, somebody that I used to know. Oh. And like we initially all were like, this song's amazing. Um, speak oh, for shit. yourself. It's featuring Kimbra. She's the shit. And then we like, you know, didn't take long before we were like, if you put that song on again, DJ, I will fucking kill you. We're done with the song. So I think there's a there's an aspect of that, you know, over... When you get it beat over the head with a thing, you start to really just reject it, regardless of its worth, of its or of its uh, core, you know, yeah, worth, I guess, or or yeah. if it's a good thing, it doesn't matter. That song's still a really good song. I feel We're like just fucking a, sick of it. I I never liked it, but um, I appreciate it. <laughs> I respect it. Uh, but that's that's a very phantom trait. The the over emotionality of I don't want to say over. But emotionally centered Hyper. of um of like uh re- using a thing over and over again until you you kill it like this is oh, yeah. the, the thing that I almost like listen to to death like you know uh, what's that song called Goita is the song oh it's called somebody, somebody that I, used I used to, to know like like you know the the Christine is to Phantom as or maybe uh, it's Gautier I forget how you say it. <laughs> Whatever. But yeah, like uh, the Christine is to Phantom as someone obsessed with that song at the time, you know, or th- that song is to someone obsessed with that song right. at the time. <laughs> you know, speaking of the music, since we never really touched on it, the musical itself was wildly like embedded in my young, I guess, or late adolescence. Like I must like have I seen it I... like two or three times. Did like, you? Oh, yeah. dude, I only saw it once, but it was right it was so I was I think it was sixth grade for me. So it was ninety one, maybe ninety-two. And I had not this was those few years right there was when I really sort of got introduced by my parents to a bunch of art forms revolving around either film, stage play, or musicals. Yeah. Like they really were like, let's go like he's you know, Tim seems like he might be into this stuff. Let's expose him to good versions of it or whatever. And it's like, that was the same year that my dad took me to uh, the first like dramatic uh, kind of avant-garde stage play. I'd never seen like straight theater in that way. I'd only ever really seen musicals and was super blown away because suddenly you're seeing, I was like, oh, this exists that's wild. Right. Like you can set design on on a dramatic play like that particular play. I have no idea what it was. I think it was an original at the University of Rochester, but it was fucking awesome. And it uh, that was also right about the same year that the Mel Gibson Hamlet came out, which is how I sort of was introduced to Shakespeare. And I got super into that. So like all those things are happening right at that time. But man, we bought the soundtrack 
the specific cast soundtrack from that Toronto cast. (laughs) And I listened to that shit so much. Like, I still now, like, if somebody mentions Phantom of the Opera, I, like, there are little things that, like, trigger off in my brain where I'm, like, just immediately start singing one of the Phantom songs. <laughs> yep. Like, at the beginning of the episode, it's just already... <laughs> oh, dude. In our heads. If somebody says Phantom of the Opera, I'm like, Insolent boy to slay the fashion! <laughs> like, I can't resist, because it's just, like, inside of my brain. Yeah. And my uh, heart. Great. Well, um, <laughs> I want to, yeah, are you going to move on to recommend dead shins? I will have one, one more thing at the telltale end of the episode. I wanted to connect back to the idea of old things actually not being old yeah. uh, from where we were just talking about. Okay, great. Recommend dead shins for now. Next. What do you got? I got a show that I stumbled on. Uh, it's on Amazon Prime, but it's a history channel show. There's like. I think there's just two seasons on Amazon. I'm halfway through the second season. And it's called Alone. And it's just like stoking, no pun intended actually, it's stoking this desire and this sort of like thing that is super appealing to me, which is the premise is that they take 10 people who audition or whatever they do for this show. It's a reality show. Um, And those 10 people are given a certain set of supplies and you can pick certain things or whatever, but it's a limited set of things to bring with them to be dropped into the middle of the wilderness in on Vancouver Island, which is a particularly unpleasant climate to try and survive in. And they're just left there on their own to see who can last the longest. <laughs> Fun. And I just am like, I love the concept of this. I It makes me go, I'm so into wondering how I would fare in that circumstance. And so I'm all fired up about it. And like the thing that's so, I guess, appealing, it's upsetting and annoying as well. But like why I like the show is watching the psychology of these people fall apart because like they're all totally capable of doing the thing. Like they can find food, they can figure it out, they could do it, but they don't. And why they don't in certain ways based on their own sort of neuroses or psychology or just like not being accustomed to having low amounts of calories, right? Like it does a thing to your brain. And some of them just have never experienced it. Like one dude in the first season, spoiler, I guess, but episode one, a guy leaves within 24 hours. And I'm like my mind is just blown by that concept, right? Because like you got picked out of probably a lot of people and you got on the show, you, you're one of the 10 and you couldn't last a day. So why? Nothing against him, but just like why? And his thing was he's afraid that he was going to get attacked by a bear, which is a legit fear, but like it's super unlikely. You know, if you if you rationally sit back and go, but do bears black bears which is what's around there are they actually going to attack you probably not i mean very very unlikely yeah but like the the germ of that fear got him in less than 24 hours (laughs) and i fucking think that is super fascinating yeah so the whole show is cool so alone it's called alone cool um so i know i'm a little late on this uh is appropriate for we talked about 
in a lot of ways, as far as this being a horror podcast and um, history not being um, that old here in America and our ongoing uh, revolution against institutionalized racism. But I finally watched 12 Years a Slave. Now I'm late to it. Have you seen it, Tim? Yes, I have. I, it's weird as far as like recommending it in the sense of like, of course it's not fun, but I just thought it was so important to have something that was like, for me, like that wasn't, let's say in the style that feels dated now of like, let's say, even though they're still hold up in maybe their own way in regards like glory or just whatever, like Mm -hmm. 80s, 90s things that are the touchstones that we've always had to have. Finally, you know, one that's maybe more importantly, not just modern, but made by a black filmmaker. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Incredible. Steve but, McQueen right. is no no joke one of the greatest directors right. so, of our era, for sure. I'm just trying to actually watch his movies now, yeah. <laughs> clearly. Well, um, dude, uh, my favorite movie of his is Hunger. Cool. I know this Ooh. is the first one I've seen. Um yeah, I want to I see his rest now. But man, just as kind of like a important to not look away kind of thing, I guess. Mm-hmm. And again, just being a really well-made film showing the story. And I think doing just something about the fact that this that the story, like <laughs> for, for anyone who, you know, it's comes to, it's maybe more difficult to understand uh, and having being, you know, what it means to be inherently racist by being a part of an institutionalized racism system, just the having the story not just be any slave, which should bring out our empathy enough, but having it be a free man then turned into a slave, mm-hmm. um, as a you know, is just a good way to sort of tell that story, um, yeah. especially. Um, so, man, yeah, if you haven't seen it, trying to trying to catch up like me. Check it out. I think this is sort of just a tail reaction to what you're saying. I, I think that there's a thing, and it's important in storytelling to to look out for ways to accomplish this. Um, injustice within the group norm is much harder to attach to than injustice to the individual. Right as a, as storytellers, mm-hmm. and this that movie in particular gives us a way in to go. You know, slavery existed at that time, so if you just had a movie that's sort of broadly about slavery, it would be harder for us to get in, mm-hmm. especially as white men that right. have literally no fucking contact with that at all. Right, because like it's nothing's. Ch- I mean. You know what I mean when I say nothing's changed as far mm-hmm. as like the North being just the equivalent of now, you know, but slavery still existing now. Like it's, yeah. Yeah. So to to individualize the injustice is a, is a really key way for us as, you know, consumers of story to to get in because we know what it's like to be accused or held accused of a thing that we – shouldn't be right like people can relate to that on a really fundamental level we talk about it on the show all the time right that's one of the big fears is when you are you cannot defend an accusation right like that's terrifying and that i mean dude 12 years a slave is right it's it's that times a fucking billion 
<laughs> well, um, hold this thought because I'm going to use that as transition, but we do have to figure out next week's film. <gasps> so you want to pull that for us? Is it my turn? Yes. <laughs> I Far mean, out. sure. <laughs> <laughs> How about this one? Wait, didn't we watch this? Eyes Without a Face? We have not watched that. Eyes Without... Isn't that... That's like a song. Eyes Without a Face. <laughs> and clearly a movie that we haven't seen. No, I. it's one that I really... I always recognize the poster of. Um, cool. So it's supposed to be good. I think it's from like 1960, is it? It Something is. Like that. Yeah. Good call. I'm pretty good with dates and running times. There you go. <laughs> um... <laughs> Anyway, Tim, I did. Okay. So this has just been, I don't know whether it's a hellier synchronicity going on, but I just think the, a, a way that I interpret, um, or I'm thinking about a lot, you know, of our changing world and eras ending and shifting, mm. um, and how that's connected to 12 years of slave being told over 12 years of a man's life that goes by, you know, just like that. Sure. And sort of those implications, watching everyone age as quickly as they do when he watches children, that movie being about as long ago as it was, but really, really recent history. <laughs> yeah. Just as I said, films made in the 1920, you know, very recent history still. Um, and I guess I'm trying to get anywhere with this as something to do with you you know that's just always a reminder of our our mortality and how quickly mm -hmm. times passed how we're so finely tuned evolved um to, <laughs> to 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 like where we can't watch ourselves our fingernails growing fast enough that we're freaking out about oh my god i'm dying right now you know <laughs> yet we're aged just quickly enough to maybe still you know light the fire under us is this is this are you reacting to the fact that you've grown a beard so fast <laughs> yes no well <laughs> what i'm reacting to what really like just sort of drove all this home for me this morning in addition to seeing ian mcclellan uh sorry ian holm i'm so did, sorry i did that to you <laughs> ian holm pass away um i saw this morning that a a singer named Vera Vera or Vera Lynn also passed away today oh, at wow. age 103. Shit. And so she's famous for how cinephiles, how we all know her for, um, is singing We'll Meet Again at the end of Dr. Strangelove, which oh my God. is just one of those songs that when you see the film, you know the movie's old. You feel like that that song, when that movie was released, is old, which is what it is. Um. And again, this is just kind of that perpetuating the idea, like everything's, you know, from before time, it's old, it's old, it's old, it's old, it's old. And then we're here we are talking about it's not. So I think all this just kind of really struck me hard in a way when I saw this. First of all, like, wait, she was still alive at all is something I didn't even think about. But the fact that she was up through 2020 seeing all this, someone living to 103 who released a was considered a pop song at the time that added a sort of uh, a, a sentimentality to the British at the wartime, you know, and mm -hmm. um, in a way that was destructive later on, maybe glamorized it in a bad way. Um, that's aside the point. Um, <laughs> anyway, 
Anyway, since this has all been on my head and trying to put it in the context of outside just Dr. Strangelove, I wanted, uh, I thought we could end the episode by playing that song in, uh, <laughs> as tribute to, uh, well, everything we're talking about, but through the guise of Vera Lynn, who just passed away at age 103. More Let's just uh, the trip of that. So, yeah. You and I, uh, as in you listening, you, Tim, and I, we will see you again <laughs> here at Dismembering Whore. That's right. And we thank you. Thanks, everyone, for being here. We'll see you again. We'll meet again. Bye, everyone. Bye. We'll meet again. Don't know where. Don't know when. But I know we'll meet again. Some sunny day Keep smiling through Just like you always do Till the blue skies drive the dark clouds far away So will you please say hello the folks that I know Tell them I won't be long They'll be happy to know That as you saw me go I was singing this song we meet again Don't know where Don't know where Some sunny 